As we get started, before I read the text and, and make some observations and some points for us to apply and meditate on, um, I wonder what you think Toy Story 3, Russian nesting dolls, and Western movies all have in common. Probably not much on the surface, but those three illustrations are going to come at the same point. I want to help teach you how to read the Bible. And so all of this is kind of filtered through uh, a book by Robert Alter. So for any of you that are more Bible scholar wannabes or nerds or whatever you want to call yourself, if you really like to read, uh, Robert Alter's The Art of Biblical Narrative has been one of the best books written in the last century about how to read the Old Testament stories. And so a lot of his ideas have shaped some of the way I approach, you know, preaching Exodus, for example. So here's the illustration he gives first is Western movies in his book. And is trying to make the point that when you read the Old Testament, a lot of times you're going to notice patterns and repetition of things like, hey, wait, didn't I just see that happen with Abraham? And then now that's happening again with Moses and then later on with Joshua. And so last week we read about the crossing of the Red Sea and then the people crossing through dry ground. And then I said, by the way, he's going to do this same thing again when the people go into the land of Canaan and they cross through the Jordan River. You're like, wait, didn't that just happen? And so that happens a lot, like a whole lot. And so to try and help explain that, Robert Alter says, think of the Western movie genre in the way that a lot of times you'll have these, in each genre, a, a sort of pattern of how things work at the climax of the story. So, for example, in Westerns, you'll have like the draw scene where you're like coming out and like who's going to shoot each other. And then everybody else has their guns ready. But at the last second, the winner, the hero guy, you know, pulls it out quicker than everybody and shoots 50 guys all at once. And you're like, how in the world is that possible, right? And so there's this genre of Western films and how they do things to tell a story. And if you keep following that genre, so imagine that, you know, there's, this is what Robert Alter says, imagine there's this post-apocalyptic bombing on America, and, you know, it's pretty dark, but uh, everything goes bad, and then people come in later, and they find old films in L.A., and they're going through them, and they're trying to figure out, what, what are these Western movies? Uh, and and they're, they're noticing a pattern of, like, oh, every time this happens. But then, on the 12th movie made by the same people, it changes a little bit. And instead of having the quick draw or whatever, the guy's got an injury to his hand and he's got like a rifle over his back. And, and so it's like, it's a subtle, but if you've been following along, it's a big twist change and you get the point that they're trying to highlight that and they're breaking the pattern, if you want to put it that way. Toy Story 3 has a similar uh, thing I learned about recently that in their movie there's this breakout scene where all of the toys are in basically jail, they're in a daycare, and that's awful, and it's like jail. Well, the creators of that story, which is part of the reason, as I learned this fun fact, why I really appreciate the Toy Story movies, uh, if, if you don't, uh, hopefully it'll make sense, is that they spent hours and hours studying the genre of break-out-of-jail movies and literature. 
just tons of research went into how does that work, and then they told their story so that if you knew that genre of movie, you would get all these little subtle hints and clues. I would imagine almost all of you in this room have watched a kid's film at some point and noticed that there's like the surface level of what's going on, and then there's like, oh no, that went way over the kids' heads. There was something better going on there. It was maybe a joke or an allusion to something, and that's what I mean by the nesting dolls is that it's like most people when they read the Bible, I think are just looking at the outside surface of the doll and they don't realize that there's layers of dolls inside all the way down to the very core of that wooden doll. And if you're not reading the Bible that way, I just want to say, then you're missing out. You know, you're missing out as if like you've just scratched the surface, but there's like gold down deep into the trenches of the caves of the Bible. And I want to help you today see in this story in particular, the Bible is a deep, deep well full of gold. Don't stop digging. It is nesting dolls, and don't just look at the surface. So let's read a little bit of the text. Let me make some of these points and observations. We're in chapter 15 where we left off last week, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was Bitter, by the way, the Hebrew word is Mara. So they came to Mara. They could not drink the water of Mara because it was Mara. Therefore, it was named Mara. I think it was bitter. Did you get the point? Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log or a tree and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and then camped there by the water. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Now, when I read Sin, by the way, this is just a short abbreviation of Sinai. It has nothing to do with the normal word we think of for sin, like a, a bad transgression. So the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, meaning they've been gone for one month if you count up the days. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them 
whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Let's pause there. There are so many little nesting dolls if you have followed along. Even that last line, when I read that, if you've been following through this sermon series, you should see that that's connecting you back to the Exodus story and this question that Pharaoh asks when Moses goes up to Pharaoh and says, hey, let the people of Israel go so that they can worship Yahweh, the one true God. Who's Yahweh? And then there's this repeated refrain again and again for those chapters, from like chapter 5 all the way to this chapter of, so that you will know that I am the Lord. But they're all directed to Pharaoh, right? So that you will know that, so that Pharaoh will know that he is Yahweh, the, the true supreme Elohim God over all the other gods. But now who needs to know that he is the Lord? The very people that he saved out of slavery. Not Pharaoh needs to know, Israel needs to know. And that's just a little comment. So here's, here's doll number one, if you're thinking in terms of just structure of this message. I'm going to give you doll number one, nesting doll number one. God tests his people in the wilderness so that they will know he provides. On the surface, that's what this text is about. And a lot of you, I think, could read this text and get that surfaced nesting doll. But man, are there layers of this point. God tests his people in the wilderness so that they will know he provides for them. You've got a series of tests, actually. We didn't read all of them, actually, yet. But there's water, and then there's food, and then there's going to be another water test in chapter 17. And it's interesting, isn't it, that you've got water as this first test right out of chapter 15. You'd think a month after God just parted the Red Sea with wall-high parting and made dry ground beneath and just swallowed up the Pharaoh army, that they would have faith that this God knows what to do with water, that he's maybe over control of the waters. And so it's 
by no accident that you see the layering of this water testing. Notice I got this language, by the way, right from the text itself. Verse 25 of chapter 15, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. And then he's going to use that language again later in chapter 16, verse 4, and that you shall not gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my Torah, that's the word used for my law or not, which is again another kind of layering of words and patterns that we can't get into in terms of the Torah theme. But let's think about this testing theme. The wilderness did not create the unbelief in the heart of God's people. The wilderness never does. The reason you're supposed to read the repetition of these stories is because you're to see that this is the human condition. This is the way that you and I act. So often we read these stories, as I've pointed out again and again, and we look down on these people. We think we're superior to them. They often do look very, very foolish. And it's as if the authors of these stories, through the power of the Spirit, has the nice smirk on his face as he's giving you a gut punch in the stomach. Because it's like, oh, wait. That's what we're like when we're in the wilderness. When there's no water. When I'm hungry. Like literally, a lot of us, when we're hungry, don't we get a little hangry and we're a little upset and we don't act the way we should. Unbelief is always there in our hearts. The sin that was there just needed to be exposed and the wilderness was the case to expose the sin of unbelief in particular. Whenever we have tests in school or in your workplace, they're not to make something bad happen. It's to see what's already there, what's already in your brain when you're in school, children, and you're getting a test. It's to see, is, is it there? Will it come out to the surface when I test you on it? Doctors do exams to see what's really going on with your blood pressure. You don't yell at the doctor and say, what's the problem with you telling me my blood pressure's too high? Well, like, you settle down like we've, we can tell you've got blood pressure issues. But nobody does that in particular. I mean, at least... On a good day, you don't. You don't yell at the doctor for running the test and saying, look, that's just what was there. God tests his people. He is not capricious or angry or playing games with his people. It is to grow his people. It is for their good. When he saved them out of Egypt, they were like infants. He calls them in chapter 4 his son, Israel is his son. It's one of his children. We sang that song, I'm a child of God. Where does that idea come from? It actually comes first from Exodus in the stories that we've been reading. God tests his children to grow them. Do you think of your trials that way? The wilderness moments in your life? Do you see them as God's kindness to you to not just prove your faith, to see what's really there, but ultimately to improve your faith. There's so many ways I think that we should be applying this to our lives. Consider for a moment that they're one month out from when they just saw God part the waters. They come to a new body of water and they grumble. How many times have you seen God do something in your life and it only takes a week or a month and you start grumbling again? that you quickly forget 
This, my friends, as we talked about last week, is the pinnacle of the salvation event in the people of Israel in the Old Testament. This is like you coming before the cross of Christ and seeing him die and rise again and ascend to heaven. Be like, wow, my faith is going to be good for a long, long time, isn't it? No. This story is teaching us so much more about why miracles are not the thing that lasts for your faith. You don't need another miracle or sign to help get you through. What you need is daily dependence on God's promise to provide. Is that where you are living right now? Are you feeding on that promise that God will provide, that he will meet all of your needs gloriously through Jesus Christ? Another application thought for you this morning is that this text of Scripture, this story of the wilderness, is applied in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. On the surface, if you read the surface, you see that God's providing for his people even when they grumble and even when they have very little to work with. And God in his kindness continues to give and provide. And that character of God's generosity should be the way you and I are reflecting God's character in the way we live. And so Paul, in that two chapters of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uses this passage of Scripture and quotes it to tell the Corinthian church how they should be generous with their money to help the poor. Is that how you think of God? Is that how you understand him, that he will provide, and therefore I can bank with hope and with confidence on his provision for me? And even when things get tight, even when things feel like I'm in the wilderness and I don't know where it's coming next, is there faith, my friend? to turn to God, to trust in Him, to pray to Him, to even give that check or be generous with your time. How many of us are stingy not just with our money but with our time and we're greedy that way? Think about this in those areas. Do you trust God to provide and give you all that you need? Tim Keller has very eloquently said, you do not really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So many of us will not learn this lesson of God's provision until you're in the wilderness. So why do we grumble so often when we're in the wilderness? Why have we not learned this lesson? Maybe it's the same reason why these stories are like these nesting dolls and repeat again and again and again because it's often through the long, repeated efforts. Too many times I think we just want the quick fix. You know, they were hungry in the wilderness. God obviously has miraculous powers and ability and control to do whatever he wants. Think about it for a moment if he wanted to. They're grumbling with hunger in their stomach. Why, why didn't he just zap right there? Oh, I'm not hungry anymore. He, he didn't just make manna appear from heaven. It just appeared in my stomach. Like, well, what's going on here? Surely he's teaching them something. The whole point is this is like wilderness university. This is a class. This is a school. He is testing and teaching them through this process. Why make them gather every day? Why not gather once a week? Why not once a month? All of these things are pointing to God using this intentionally to teach them and grow them. When all other wells are dry and all other streams are bitter, then you learn that God's water is sweet. And he is the bread that satisfies. 
I want you to think right now of an instance or a time where God has done this in your life. My guess is that this is universal, that any of us could go around the room and share a story, an instance, where it was in fact because of God's leading us into the wilderness that I grew more, that my faith was tested, sometimes my sin was revealed, but because of that I ended up turning to the Lord. I realized he's all I have. It was just three years ago that the story that quickly popped into my head was when my son John was born. And so for many of you that don't know, but most of you who do, he was born two months early, and it was in the middle of the night on a Saturday night into the Sunday morning. I was preparing to preach, and I get the phone call from my wife, baby's coming now, get over here, get CJ, our intern, to fill in and preach, because you ain't preaching today. And I remember those next several hours, and I remember the prayers. Do you know when you're going through a hard time, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this particular feeling, but here's just God teaching me about my dependence on him and the power of prayer in a way that I don't think he's ever taught me before just from reading a book or something. But in that moment, hearing some of you tell me you were praying for me, it was like, Yes, that's the food that satisfies my soul in this moment. Like, it really meant a lot. So thank you for your support during that challenging season, as we had very little we could do. You know, especially me, I felt like, well, that's my wife and her body, and they're going to take a baby out, and then they're going to put it in the NICU, and we can't really touch him or do anything. It just felt so helpless for so many days. And he was testing. He was proving, Phil, where are you going to turn? And so often your reminders for me to turn to God and pray and tell me you were praying for me, I just can't even explain the overwhelming even emotions for a guy that doesn't have many of those things, emotions. Like, it just felt so strong and powerful. And so you don't really know that Jesus is all you need until, what, what else am I going to turn to? There's nothing else I can do. I'm assuming that as I share that story, some of you are like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And this is exactly what this story, I think, is trying to teach us on the surface. But there's layers, my friends. This pattern of the Western, you know, keeps happening the same way. That's, you just keep reading. I mean, the whole book of Numbers is like, wait, didn't we just read about this in Exodus? How did they not get the point? There's one commentary I was reading was like, it's kind of suspicious at times when you read Numbers chapter 24 or whatever it is and Exodus chapter 16, you put them next to each other, you're like, that's like the same exact story. It's just a whole different generation of people later. But the pattern doesn't stay through the rest of human history and even the Bible. One of the great things about this illustration of keep taking the nesting dolls further, keep opening and going down the Old Testament and then eventually get to the New Testament. Is it any coincidence that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness before he started his public ministry? And he fasted, and it says as the greatest understatement in all of biblical literature, he was hungry. Yeah, I would imagine He fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, and it said he was hungry. 
And then he is challenged to turn a stone to bread. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God. By the way, Deuteronomy 8 is talking back about this instance of the Exodus wilderness wandering and saying, do not put God to the test. This is, in fact, what they're doing. It's play on words throughout this story. If you flip your eyes over to chapter 17, look at the way it says in verse 2. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Remember, who's testing who is the way you should be reading that. Jesus was in the wilderness, and did he pass the test? You see how the pattern keeps going and going throughout the Old Testament? They failed. They failed. They failed. You get the biblical genre of what's happening here. And then Jesus succeeds in the wilderness, where every single person before him failed. He did not change the stones to bread. He quoted God's word, and he succeeded The reason I had Gina read such a longer portion of Scripture is because the entire chapter of John chapter 6 should make you be thinking about what we're reading in Exodus. Not just the explicit references, the entire chapter. Turn with me real quick, again, to John chapter 6. I want to point out a couple obvious things to help you hopefully read your Bible with the lenses of, wow, the biblical authors are intentionally trying to tell you that there's these design patterns in the way they write so that you think, that's that same nesting doll. That's all connected. John chapter 6. Gina started reading in verse 25, but look back at verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Ding, ding, ding. Mark number one that you should start thinking, oh, Passover, what does that remind me of? Exodus chapters 12 through 15. So this is the time of the Passover, and where's Jesus? Jesus went up on the mountain in verse 3, sat with his disciples. Now drop down to verse 5, lifting his eyes up and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to, shout it out for me, test him. Coincidence? Subtle allusion back to all the testing language of the book of Exodus? Passover, then testing. Then Jesus does a miracle with bread. Oh, by the way, what's the very next story after Jesus feeds the 5,000? Look at your Bibles. You see your little subheading? Chapter 6, verse 16. What's Jesus do? Walk on waters. So Jesus has power over the waters. There's water, there's bread. I mean, every part of John chapter 6 is trying to tell you that Jesus is the change break the pattern of the entire genre of wilderness stories and manna coming from heaven and and people who are did you catch this by the way when Gina read it look at chapter 6 verse 41 so the Jews grumbled about him drop down to verse 43 Jesus answered them do not grumble among yourselves it's dripping my friends with 
the final little nesting doll to tell you all of this was connected back to the book of Exodus. Jesus crossed the water. He discussed the manna. There's even this conversation about, you remember manna, by the way? Manna just means, what is it? Like, you take the word in Hebrew, if you were to ask, well, what is that? Say that word, manna. So the name for the bread is, what is it? Because when they saw it, they said, what is it? We've never seen anything like that before. And there's even, I think, this subtle allusion to when Jesus comes on the scene, everybody's like, wait, who is that guy? What, what, is, what is that? Isn't that not Joseph's son? He's just another ordinary guy. Who? I've never seen anything like this before. They are dumbfounded. They are befuddled. And ultimately, Jesus is offering himself to God on the cross as the only bread that will satisfy, because I think there's also overtones to the Levitical sacrifice, a whole nother set of nesting dolls. But that's doll number one. That's big idea number one. God, in these stories, is teaching us that he is testing his people in the wilderness so that you will know he will provide for you. And so I want to just simply, before we move on to the next one, ask Do you know this God? And are you living as if this God exists? Or are you living as a functional atheist? So many atheists, I think, live as if God and the purpose of life does matter. They're not living out the functional reality of their belief system. Think about it. If you have no reason for living, you have no purpose... You have no definition for what's right and wrong. How do you function in that system? Well, they don't live as if that's actually true. They kind of push that off. Well, yeah, I know. I had this conversation, by the way, with a guy who's an atheist at Judson's campus. I was having lunch with some of the students. And this is what he was telling me. He's like, yeah, I know. I know it's kind of fatalistic and it's really depressing, but I just don't think about it. So wait, you just believe something and say, this is how I think and believe, and I'm just going to shove that off as if it, yeah, I'm not going to live out the actual implications of my beliefs. My friend, every time you sin, that's exactly what you're doing. You're not living out the functional reality of your beliefs. Do you believe that God will provide, that he is a provider, that he has provided? If he did not spare his son, will he not also graciously provide generously everything that you need? Look at the cross. How long does it take for you to forget and grumble when you look at some situation that you're going through right now and think, ah, and let that grumbling turn into bitterness and anger toward God? So much for us to dwell on, is there not? But let's look at a second nesting doll. And I will not be able to look at all of them, but I want us to consider this one as well. God commands his people to trust him by requiring them to rest. God commands his people to trust him by requiring them to rest. Let's pick up in the story where I left off and read a little bit more about this Sabbath lesson in this wilderness university that they're in. Chapter 16, verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. I heard one person say it's kind of like instant mashed potatoes, you know, like if you want to picture something, but much sweeter, honey-flavored, as you'll see. Verse 15, 
When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer. If you have a footnote, you'll see it's a couple liters worth. According to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. I've seen this story before. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, and as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And of course, they listened. No, they didn't. Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Let's pause there. God commands his people to trust him by demanding that they rest. It's interesting, is it not, that the Sabbath occurs here as a practice and as a pattern for them to get into before God even gives them the Ten Commandments. You should should think about that for a moment, the implications of that concept. This is one of the reasons why people say there's a link in this story of nesting dolls about rest, about Sabbath that goes from creation. In Genesis chapter 2, when God rests... And creates a pattern for how how the world works, how humans should function in the world. That God knows what's best for us. And so he gives to his people as they're to be a light to the rest of the world and to the nations how they should live. They should live with six days of work and one day of rest. And this is made explicit in the Ten Commandments when you get to the fourth command. Did you know, by the way, that out of all of the commands of the Ten Commandments, The fourth commandment is by far the longest when you read up just the number of words. You know, several of them are, you shall not murder. That's it, two words in the Greek, Hebrew. But the Sabbath has all of this explanation about why and motivations. and It's a big deal is my point. What's interesting though is before those ten commandments, they're given the Sabbath now as a pattern for how they should deal with the manna. And they still don't do it. 
I mean, not only is that like, yeah, that's us, another punch in the gut, but think about it like this. You would think if anybody was motivated to take a day off, it would be these people. Well, why do you say that? Well, remember the story. Remember chapter one, where it says that they are made to work tirelessly and work, work, work. He repeats it seven times in, in the course of one sentence. And again, this is another one of those Hebrew things. If you have seven times of something repeated, it's telling you it's the fullness of it. It's like you worked down to the bone. You had nothing left. You're exhausted. Any of you feeling that way, by the way? Tired? Exhausted? Overwhelmed? How many times have you heard that in conversations even in this church of like, how are you doing? I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. God's commands to us are not burdensome. You'd think if anybody might want to hear this command, you would receive it with like, that's so life-giving, freeing. They were in slavery under a tyrannical, horrific, evil ruler named Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He enslaved them to work in this manner. And so then God sets them free and says, listen, I'm going to make it so you don't have to work one day of the week. And what do they do? They keep working. People in psychology would say, they've got an addiction problem, right? There's, there's something wrong up here. It's like somebody that has an addiction and they keep going back after you've been set free. It's a relapse. It's like you've been in an abusive relationship. It's like, oh, but he still loves me. It's like, did you forget what it was like to be in that relationship? That's the way they talk in this story. Oh, if we could just go back to Egypt and die? Like, literally, you would, you would rather die. That would be better. That's how irrational sin is. So many of you, you're not seeing the irrationality of your thoughts and your sin. There's some damage going on from years and years of training yourself to think the wrong way. And what should we see from God in this? Well, we should see the graciousness of his command and then also that he is patient with them. They didn't get the first lesson. They failed the test. So he gave them another chance. They failed that test. You read into chapter 17, they're going to fail that test. I mean, the patience of God to deal with his people. That's how you know that this is not the kind of test. When you hear that word testing, this is not the kind of testing that says, listen, you better get the right score, 100%. If not, you're out. Hell for you, heaven for her. It's not the way this works. This is like dealing with a child, teaching them to walk. They take one step and fall over, and you're like, yes, yes, that was really good. Let's see if you can take two next time. Oh, wow. That's the way we are, right? God is so patient, like a father, dealing with children who are just learning to walk. He's so merciful. Look at him that way. See him that way, the text is saying. See that the Lord has given you a Sabbath. See this as his gracious, loving commands. They're not burdensome. They're to set you free from that yoke of slavery. Do you trust God? God's commanding you to trust him by limiting yourself and saying, God, I trust that you got it and I'm going to rest. I'm going I'm to take a Sabbath. At this church, for the last several different years, we've come across this issue at different times. You can go back and I can hand you notes or give you data or read books or whatever, our church has taken the stance that the Sabbath is being fulfilled as you follow the nesting doll in Jesus. 
There should be no guilt or sense of you feeling as a Christian, it is my duty to obey the Sabbath. We believe Jesus is the Sabbath rest. He himself fulfills this whole storyline and therefore the implication is not, are you doing good at keeping your Sabbath? Are you working on Sundays? Oh, by the way, Sabbath was Saturday. Okay, are you working on Saturdays? You know, like all kinds of issues about that, by the way. Here's my question. Even if you take my position, or even if you don't, all of us should take the idea that God knows better than you and me. You should trust him, and you should rest one day out of the week. This isn't like, you better or you're going to get kicked out of our church. You better or you're not a true Christian. Oh, the elite Christians are the ones who practice Sabbath rest. It's like, it's just wise and good and brings life. God, it says in chapter 15, he is the Lord, your healer. He wants to bring healing from your overworked, overbusy, ridiculous schedule type people here in the United States of America. That's what he wants to do. But when we hear this teaching a lot of times, it's like, oh, let me try and fit another thing into my busy, like, no, receive this as a gift, as a breath of life and joy for you. So let me give you some practical suggestions. This has been a particularly challenging point for me, let's put it that way. Something I have felt God convict me on personally, and I am in a journey of trying to figure out what does this look like with my family. So, for example, do you just take the first basic instance of it and cease working at least one day out of the week? It could be any day. It doesn't matter, I think, which day you do that. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, pick a day. Paul in the New Testament will say, anybody can think which day is holy or special than other, we can agree to disagree. Do you do that? I'd like to challenge you to take it maybe a step further or in a different way. Pick a day that maybe you not just not work. Can you take a day without having your phone on or electronics or email? Because my guess is that appendage that's stuck to our hips or our pockets, that third arm thing called our phones, is like our slavery of current day Egypt. And we're addicted to social media and emails and work. And so many of you know that you might take a day off of work, but man, I kind of worked. Just, it's just practical. This is not requirement. Please hear me out. I say this this way, by the way, because I just heard a pastor not too long ago who was teaching on the Sabbath, and he said that he had more people leave his church when he pushed in on the Sabbath than any other controversial issue about politics marriage, sexuality, etc., like all the kind of to- topics, he pressed in on the Sabbath as a church and a bunch of people were like, I'm out of here. This guy's crazy. So I- I'm kind of like, uh-oh. What happens? Parents, might you schedule a day for your children that you do this Sabbath together and therefore not have crazy programming? One day for them to not do any schoolwork. College students, consider maybe there'd be a day that I don't do any schoolwork. All of these are suggestions, not laws or rules. This is supposed to give you life. It's supposed to help you have a day where you can re 
engage and get in touch with God and, and not be distracted from all these other distractions? How many of you need a day from rest from your diet or counting calories? How many of you just need to sleep? Like literally your physical body just needs a whole day to sleep. Some of you need to have silence and solitude for a whole day because you're just constantly around people. And others of you probably need a day where you're just around friends and family and people that will energize you and give you life. And I don't know who that is for each of you, but that's why we do this in community. And even though we're not going to dive into the text, but chapter 18, Moses is going to get some very helpful advice from the community. It's his father-in-law. Some of you need to listen to your father-in-law. You never know how God might give you godly advice because you're overworked and overstressed and you need to kind of put some parameters on your life. In our discipling relationships, that's how we figure these questions out. Do you think that a pastor would get fired for committing adultery in most churches? Do you think that he should get fired if he murdered somebody? How about if he stole money from the church? How about if he had a terrible coveting or pornography problem? You see where this is going? How many churches would fire a pastor for working too much? Most of them would probably give him a raise. Think about it. I'm not saying this because I need a raise. (laughs) I'm not saying this because I'm desperately wanting you to tell me I work too much or not enough. Just an observation. That's how I've been thinking about it. I'm actually really thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the ways that you have not overburdened me and have allowed me to rest. And some of you actually often check in and ask, how are you doing? Some of you even ask, how's your wife doing? Or ask her, how is Phil doing? How are you doing? I just want you to know from my heart, I, I feel very loved and cared for and the freedom to obey God and his commands and live the way that would be best for you and me. But I do know you well enough. We've spent time together. You've been in my home. We've had conversations. I know that the reason I am pressing in on this point is because we need it. And here's the bottom line question. Do you just trust God? That's what it really comes down to. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Are you living out of the reality that you are a child of God who has a father who wants to lavish on you good commands that will help you flourish and prosper? Do you see that the way the nesting dolls go to Jesus and he comes on that day, unrolls the scroll, reads the scroll from Isaiah and says, today this scripture is to be fulfilled. It's the scripture about the year of Jubilee, the Jubilee of Jubilees. That means Sabbath of Sabbaths. Jesus comes to bring the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. This is the way Hebrews 3 and 4 says, there's still a day of rest and it's found in Jesus. It's not found in the actual practice of the Sabbath itself. It's found by finding Jesus as your Sabbath rest. Jesus died on the sixth day of the week, and in the tomb on the seventh day, he rested. 
And on the first day of the new week, he rose again to bring a whole new creation into the world. That's where the nesting dolls eventually go, by the way. With this whole Sabbath story. Do you trust him? If that's where that storyline is going, ultimately to Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, how can you not trust him? Don't you hear Isaiah 55 in this? My ways are so much higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As far as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. They're better. Let's, let's repent of our pride. Let's repent of our unbelief, our doubt, and our lack of trust, and see that this God is good, and he's worthy of our trust. You don't have to sleep six or eight hours every day and function as a normal person. You could choose to sleep only one or two hours a day. You could. You'd just be really foolish. You don't have to keep a Sabbath and take some of these practical suggestions. You don't. Like, I'm not telling you that you're going to get kicked out of the church, right? We got that? It'd just be foolish. If we had more time, but we don't, we could see dozens more nesting dolls. Things like, in chapter 15, look at verse 27. They came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Your homework is to think, what is the significance of 12 streams giving life to 70 palms, and where have we seen those numbers before in Genesis and Exodus? If we had time, but we don't, your homework is to read chapter 18 and think, what is the relationship between Jethro, a priest who is not a Jew, a Gentile priest who is then going to make an offering and a blessing right after a victory and a battle is won for the Israelites? Have we seen that before in another series of nesting dolls? Hint, hint, think Melchizedek. And so on and so on we could go. But let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you now for your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, for your saving and redeeming a people out of the slavery of fear and making us children of God. I pray that there would be a movement of the Holy Spirit amongst Embassy Church that would be like rivers of water flowing out to the nations, giving life and healing to people who are overworked and busy and stressed and exhausted and need rest. I pray that this church would be a place of refuge, a place of solace, that we would be a source of bringing in the broken who are in the middle of the wilderness and they can't find any water and we would give them the living water where they will thirst no more. I pray, God, for those who are hungry and their soul is starving and they don't have friends, they don't have family members, they don't have people that are pointing them to the true bread from heaven, the actual manna that the first manna pointed to. I pray that we would be a church that helps one another see and savor the lasting, satisfying joy of Jesus. Help us sink our teeth into that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.